Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 8. Verse 31 is where we are this morning. John chapter 8, verse 31. If you're visiting or newer, we are working our way through the Gospel of John. And I would love for you, even though we're going to have the scriptures up on the screen primarily that we're going to read, I would love for you to have your own copy of God's Word, if possible, in your lap. So if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack and the chair in front of you. Just keep that as, as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. Um, I was away last week visiting and preaching at Rob and Olivia Golding's church. You may remember Rob Golding and Olivia. They were both members of our church several years ago when they were both stationed here at Fort Benning, and then Rob got out of the army. They both got out of the army. They went away to seminary in Philadelphia, and then after Rob graduated from seminary this past summer, he assumed the pastorship of a church in the L.A. area in Artesia, California. It's actually uh, right near where I was born and spent the first three years of my life before we moved down to the border by San Diego. And so uh, Rob asked me to come out and preach and just had a wonderful time. And it was so encouraging to see the work that they're doing in this historic church there in the middle of this neighborhood in California that needs the gospel witness. And it was really wonderful to hear them talk about the impact of Crosspoint on their lives when they were here. And so I think about Herb and Evelyn as uh, Tyler was praying for them. And then just think about couples like Rob and Olivia that have come through here. And lots of streams have fed into both of these couples. But one of those streams, and a significant stream in both of their lives, has been the life of the congregation here at Crosspoint. So praise God, just by doing church, like fruits abounding, in far across places, countries like North Africa, countries like California. The gospel is being advanced uh, through, it's my home state, so I can kid. Well, Robert did a wonderful job uh, leading us through the middle portion of John chapter 8, and we find ourselves now in verse 31, and we're going to, Lord willing, make our way through verse 47. The theme last week is Jesus' great I am statement, I am the light of the world, and this morning another glorious statement of Jesus about how he is the truth and that the truth will set us free. So here's my my plan. I'm going to work us through, just kind of read a few verses and explain, verses 31 through 47. And then we're going to settle on, I think, two truths that I want to give you up front. And if you don't remember anything from today, I just want to hammer this home in our hearts. And it is that sin enslaves us and Jesus frees us. I think that's the heart of this passage, and it's the heart of what Jesus is saying to these people. Sin enslaves us, and Jesus frees us. Now, Tyler alluded to it. It's, it's easy to just kind of get into a habit and a routine, and that's, that's a good thing. That's not bad. But we can kind of numb ourselves to the reality of the spiritual battle that we are always in. We have an enemy that prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And from the very beginning, since the garden, Satan has been attacking the people of God. And the battle rages today. And this interaction that Jesus has with this crowd 
is meant to not just be a record of a portion of Jesus' ministry, clearly it's that, but it is preserved by us in Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, to help us understand what Jesus does for His people in this fight, this terrible fight that we all have with sin. So I pray that as we work through this passage that, you know, eloquence or good thoughts or points or whatever would, maybe those things might be helpful. But I pray that we would, by God's grace, encounter the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God through the Word of God, and that we would see what Father God has done through the work of the Son of God for the people of God so that we can meet Him today. That's the most important thing. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, come and meet us in your word by your spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that he is active in this room right now and I pray that he would help me. I pray that you'd help us see the intensity of the battle that we all fight with sin, that it would sober us up, but that the glorious work of the Son would would put steel in our spines and free us, that you would save any unbelievers in this room and that you would fortify sinners, fortify believers, so that we might continue to walk this walk. Help us now, Lord, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, now let me pause there and just look one verse above, if you have your Bible open, verse 30, Robert led us through last week as he was saying these things, many believed in him, so Jesus is talking about that he's the light of the world, many people believed in him, and one of the things that's going on in this portion of John's gospel is there's mounting conflict. In fact, at the end of John chapter 8, Jesus is going to claim that he is God, essentially, just sort of plainly by telling them that even before Abraham was, I am. It's this great I am statement, which is a clear statement of him assuming, declaring his divinity, his his preexistence, his godship, and that's going to cause the Jewish leaders to want to stone him at the end of John 8. And so everything's going to start to intensify in the opposition to Jesus after John chapter 8. And here, though, some of the crowd had believed in him, at least in some sense. Were, were they born again? I, I don't know. But, but notice here, I want you to take note of what, how Jesus, he's speaking to people that the previous verse and this verse have said believed in him. Now, of course, the crowd is probably large and mixed, but Jesus is primarily talking to people that have made some sort of profession of faith. And he doesn't just pat them on the back and treat them like, oh, everything's fine, and just immediately sort of add them to the membership roles of his band of followers. He presses in on them. He, he's pushing, he's, he's pushing against fickle faith. And that's a kind of word for us in our church culture today that Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't accept a kind of easy believism. He presses on people. In fact, he's going to go in and offend them. And some of them are going to walk away. It reminds me of John chapter 6 where he's, he's walking on water, he's feeding the multitudes, and he preaches this hard sermon, and a bunch of people walk away. 
So that's who he's talking to. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Maybe some of the more more famous words in the gospel of John. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So these are people that we've just heard believed, and now they're kind of offended by what Jesus says. What do you mean? So clearly they don't really understand fully what it means to believe in Jesus. They're saying to him, hey, listen, we are ethnically the offspring of Abraham. We're the chosen people of the Old Testament, and we have never been enslaved by anyone, which is an ironic thing to say, in a sense, when you are under the captivity of the Roman government at this point. So I don't think that they were necessarily talking about a kind of political captivity, because that would have just been flying in the face of reality, and they had been captives to the Babylonians and the Persians before, now they're captives to the Romans. So I think what they're saying is that because of their ethnicity, because of their status as Jews, look, spiritually, internally, we're not enslaved to anyone. So even their religious status in their minds is what they're leaning on for what they perceive to be their spiritual freedom. But Jesus tells them, no, that you will know the truth. What's that mean? The truth, who, who Jesus is, what he's done. It's not just mere facts or theological knowledge. Certainly it's part of that, but it's trusting in, leaning on, putting your hope in the Son who sets you free. And we'll read about the Son here in just a moment. Now, this, this notion of the, the truth, the truth, a body of truth that is specific, that pertains to Jesus is so important because one of the things that, that is defining our culture right now is a kind of your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And, and I think young people in our culture are being raised on that. I just want to speak to maybe teenagers or young people and below that like that is a, that sounds attractive it sounds loving for you in some sense to sort of say, well, you, you do you, you do your truth, and I'll do my truth. But friends, if you run that through, that philosophical system through, that is a lie, a destructive lie from the pit of hell. It seems attractive, especially when it's packaged by a Hollywood star or somebody that you follow on Instagram who can make cute videos And so why would you disagree with this? Because your friends are all saying this. Friends, that is a lie. There is a truth. It's the truth. The truth is not just a subjective thing that everybody gets to determine by themselves. It's it's, it's the battle of, of, of really gender and sexuality is the current truth so to speak, that, that our culture's fighting. And, and, and people are saying, well, you can just kind of determine your truth, your identity, who, who you are. But friends, wh- what is that truth saying? That's making us, our finite created hearts and minds, as the center of the standard of truth. And that is a wicked lie. Friends, we are the created. We're the pot. He's the potter. We don't get to determine who we are. God has made us a particular way. And so there's not your truth and my truth. There is the truth. And what Jesus is saying here is the truth of who God is. 
and who we are in relationship to God, and then our trust in what God has done to rescue us from ourselves, that is what will set a person free, not their self-actualization. So teenagers, I plead with you, don't, don't, and listen, I know that the world can be very seductive. I know that the things that you give yourself to and watch, entertainment, stars, athletes, it can be very seductive can be very seductive. Please, I beg, I beg of you, don't buy into that lie. If a person says, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and it seems harmless, well, if we take that philosophy and run it through, well, when does my truth become something that's not good for everybody or it's harmful? What if I say I'm a thief? Well, I, my, my identity is a bank robber. I'm just going to rob banks. That's my truth. So why, how can you challenge that? I, my, my truth is to commit some grievous crime. Well, how can you challenge it? Do you see how this, this system, if you just think about it for more than 30 seconds, it absolutely falls, falls in on itself. There's one truth, and it's the truth of God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and our desperate need of reconciliation. It's the gospel. So this is what Jesus is saying to them. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So how does the freedom come? The truth, he whittles it down. What is this truth? It's, it's, it's bound up in the son. And if the son, he's obviously speaking of himself. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And notice how our culture will talk about Trusting in Christ is somehow like religious chains, chains and something that clamps you down as if it's opposed to your freedom. But actually, what Jesus is saying here in verse 36 is freedom can only be found in him, in following him, in obeying him, not this self-autonomy that is a lie of the culture. Jesus says in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. So he's saying, okay, I acknowledge, yes, you are ethnic Jews. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So he's saying, you're, you're the people of God. You're my people. But yet, what is his description of them? You, you, you're seeking to kill me. Why are they seeking to kill him? Because my word finds no place in you. What a thing to be said. And I'm just thinking, I was, I was reading this this week and preparing. I was thinking, Lord, may your word, may your word find a place in us, in me. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And so he's making this distinction here in verse 38, which is going to become very offensive to them, which he will elaborate on more. He will really drill in here in, in the following verses. But he's saying, I've, I've got my father in heaven, and I follow him, I obey him, and you do what you've heard from your father. What does he mean by that? Well, he's going to be clear about that. He's going to talk about their father is Satan. So let's keep going in verse 39. They answered him, well, Abraham is our father. We're Jews. We're ethnic Jews. That's their response to him. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And so Jesus is distinguishing about what it means to truly be a person of God. 
Because in the Old Testament, the people of God, in a sense, were ethnic Jews, descended physically from Abraham. But in the New Testament, we read the Apostle Paul who tells us that this Old Testament shadow of what it meant to be ethnically a Jew was just a kind of picture of the people of God that we see find its reality in the New Testament in faith. And so Paul says something really, really incredible, a paradigm shifting thing. He says about what it means to be Abraham's offspring or to be a Jew ultimately isn't a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. So Abraham is a picture of what it means to trust in God. And so Paul will say in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, in other words, just descended ethnically from the flesh, Jewish in their ethnicity, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Abraham and the people that physically descended from him in the Old Testament were ultimately meant to be a picture of what it means to be the people of God in the new covenant by faith. In fact, Abraham is commended not because of his ethnicity, because of his Jewness, but because of his faith in God. And so Jesus is distinguishing between physical descendants of Abraham and spiritual descendants of Abraham. And he says to these people, if you were Abraham's children, meaning truly, if you had faith like Abraham, that's what it means to be a true person of God. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In other words, you would be obeying me. You'd be listening to me. You would have faith in God, and I have been sent by God. In fact, I'm God in the flesh, is what Jesus is saying. But now you seek to kill me. A man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. Again, who's their father? He's confusing them. They're scratching their heads. And they said to him, because he's obviously, in a sense, Jesus is challenging their, their paternity. But he's challenging their spiritual paternity. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. In other words, we're not illegitimate children. There's kind of a dig in that because one of the things that the religious leaders did early on in the Gospel of John and other places in the Gospels is they seemed to challenge Jesus' paternity with Mary being this single woman who became pregnant before she was known by Joseph. They're challenging a sense that, you know, you're an illegitimate child. What, What do you have to say to us? They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And so they're saying, no, 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 we're God's people. And Jesus is clearly challenging that because what does it mean? What does it mean to be a person of God? Not to be a descendant of Abraham physically, not to just merely grow up in the church, not to be the child of Christian parents, but to actually personally trust in Jesus and obey him. That's the distinction that Jesus is making here for these people. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. That's a description of the Christian. Do you love Jesus? Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Father? For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? In other words, why don't you believe me? What is Jesus' answer? It is because you cannot bear to hear 
my word. This reminds me of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. He says that the mind, the unregenerate mind, the mind that is set on the flesh, the unbeliever, cannot obey God's law. It cannot. It cannot submit to God. There's an inability that we as natural born sinners have. We must, hearkening all the way back to John chapter 3 when Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus, we must be born again. That's what Jesus is pressing on here. You can't just figure this out. You can't understand what I say because you can't bear to hear my word. Why? Can't you bear to hear my word? Verse 44, he continues to push in. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Let me just pause. Can I just zoom out? And coming from somebody who's planted a church 17 years ago and thinking about Rob and Olivia at this small little church in Artesia, California, and feeling all of the pressure that um, you can feel as the leader of a church to sort of grow the church and attract people and keep them around. How does Jesus handle people that have just professed belief? Hey, we got, we got coffee, and we got a cool worship team, and you can wear whatever you want to wear. It's going to be really cool, and the messages are relevant. No, that's not what Jesus does. He tells them, your father is the devil, and he's a liar. <laughs> Man, Jesus did not know much about church growth. You are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer. He was a liar from the beginning. Maybe you grew up in an old uh, gospel church and you heard that, that phrase, the devil is a lie. That's, that phrase comes from this passage. The devil is a lie. When he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Verse 47. Jesus is going to answer, why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. And Friends, embedded in that statement is this clear, clear truth of our utter dependence on God to do the work of making us alive. He must cause us to be born again. Taylor read it for us this morning during the call to worship from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. He caused us to be born again. At the heart of the gospel is this clear message of the hopelessness and inability of people to save themselves and our utter dependence on God to make us alive, to cause us to be born again. It's grace, all grace. And don't be offended by that. That's actually really good news because the messages of the gospel is that you need to be intelligent enough, you need to understand this enough, and you need to try hard enough, and you need to build up enough merit, and you need to be good enough. No, you can't. The message of the gospel, what Jesus is telling these people, he's telling them, you are, you are a child of Satan by nature, and your only hope is to be born again of God. 
That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is telling him. And shockingly, this is a little offensive to the human soul, isn't it? And we're going to read at the end of chapter 8 next week that they want to take up stones and kill him. So he's told them, you're a sinner. And you're a sinner because you're a child of your father, the devil. And your only hope is that I would free you. So let's look as we end just these two. Let's just meditate on these two statements. Sin enslaves us and Jesus frees us. And what do we mean by sin? Well, we could preach a whole series of just what the Bible says and how it defines sin. One, one I think, simple way that the Bible itself defines sin in 1 John is that sin is, sin is lawlessness. I think that's in 1 John chapter 3 somewhere, maybe verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, God has revealed his character through his law in the Old Testament which we know has been fulfilled for us in Christ. That's why you can eat bacon this afternoon and you can wear shirts that have two types of fabric in them. And, you know, you, we don't have to abide by the, the Old Testament law in that sense because it's been fulfilled for us. But yet the heart, the moral obligation, the, the, the truth, the principles of the Old Testament law that the New Testament picks up for us and calls it the law of Christ is still in force for us. It's, it still binds us. And so one way the Bible, I think, very simply defines sin is it's, it's lawlessness. It's, it's, it's breaking God's law. It's disobeying God's revealed will in Scripture. And I think all of us would have to agree, I hope you can agree, that all of us, by nature and by choice, are sinners. That's the clear witness of, of the Bible. So sin, sin, our rebellion against God's good law enslaves us. How does it enslave us? Well, first, it, it lies. Jesus said about the devil, their father, that he's been a liar from the beginning. The devil is a lie. Sin lies. We see that in the Garden of Eden. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat of this particular tree. If you do, you will die. And then the serpent comes, Satan comes in the form of a serpent. He says, you, no, don't, no you, won't, you will not die. Sin lies. It, it minimizes, it dumbs down, it, it, it shades, it makes God's truth and clarity ambiguous. It says, oh, it's, it's not that big of a deal. No one will know. No one will know. No one will ever find out. And, and that, on some level, humanly, might be true. But God knows. God knows. And our ultimate judge is not our reputation, not the people around us. It's God. Sin, sin is an offense not against the people around us, not, not against primarily all. Sin is an offense against God. That's why, that's why David says this remarkable thing in Psalm 51 where he's repenting over his sin of adultery and murder to cover it up. And he says this remarkable thing. He says to God in his psalm, which is a prayer, he says a song. He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, I think, 
the guy that he killed to cover up his adultery might have a little bit of an issue with that. Like, well, you kind of sinned against me too, my man. I'm dead. But do you see David's perspective there? Is he so aware of the, of the glory of God that his primary focus is how his sin is seen by God? And, and really, the lie of sin is that it turns us into it turns us into functional atheists. Because when we believe the lie of sin that, you know, this isn't that big of a deal, God doesn't really care, no one will ever know, it's going to be okay in the end, essentially what we are making a decision to do is to disbelieve what God has clearly said. And that is, I think, the definition that it's kind of functional atheism. Sin lies to us so much that we can become atheists in the moment. Sin is subtle. It's always so subtle. It doesn't jump out from behind a rock and say, hey, would you like to ruin your life today? Come with me. No, it rarely shows itself for what it really is at the beginning. It's a subtle slide. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, I think it is, he says that, he says that sometimes the devil masquerades as an angel of light. It, it's, it, it's so subtle. It makes you think. It deceives us into thinking that we can manage it. It's not that big of a deal. I'm not enslaved, the Jews said to Jesus. I'm not enslaved. I can manage this. I don't mean to be silly, but it, it did kind of make me think. I remember, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, that famous circus Las Vegas act, Siegfried and Roy, they were two tiger trainers. And I realize I'm not being silly. But I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, maybe one of them, I think Siegfried, Roy maybe, in the middle of a performance, one of the tigers that they had been training just turned on him and grabbed his neck and dragged him off. And they had to like beat on this tiger and, and that he almost died. Well, I mean, you know, it's a tiger. It's a tiger. And that's what sin is. We can pet it and master it and seem, it will let us seemingly tame it for a while until it lulls us to sleep and then it puts its jaws around our neck. Sin never delivers. It promises big and never delivers. Augustine, the famous church father, said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Sin knows particularly where we are dissatisfied and it dangles a false counterfeit carrot to try and seduce us in the area where we are most dissatisfied in our hearts and tells us, it just it says, you come with me, this will meet your need and it ultimately never delivers. Sin itself is never satisfied. It will always demand more. It always demands more. It's always hungry for more. And sin equips us to be master justifiers. I think about the three huge categories that we see, kind of the, 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 the big sort of, uh, you know, more public things that we see people wreck their lives with money, power, and sex. And it just demands more, a little bit more money. I mean, just achieve a little bit. Let me compromise my principles for a little bit more money, a little bit more power, a little bit more lust, 
Let me just scratch this itch, and before you know it, it's like a riptide. You don't see the current from the surface, but all of a sudden, before you know it, you look back, and you are a mile away from shore, and you're too tired to swim back. So you just give in, because sin is patient, but it's never satisfied. Sin is stronger than we are on our own. Now, I don't want to negate the clear theological truth that greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. I think that's true. I'll stake my life on that. 1 John 4, I think that is. 1 John 4, 4, or 1 John 4, 14, one of those two verses. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Christ in you is greater than any residue of sin in you. I believe that with all my being. But I also believe that Christ has not saved us to be an island. What it means to be in Christ is to be in the body. And so he joins us to a body. And when Christians decide in their ignorance or in their pride or in their apathy to live life separated from the flock, they are making themselves vulnerable to sin. You guys know I like BBC and Planet Earth and all those British wildlife shows. <laughs> Come on, you see it. You see the lion in the safari. He's not going after the herd. He's going after the poor little gazelle that's got his head down in the water, forgetting that the herd just left. And here's my, here's my concern pastorally about where the church is, not just Crosspoint, but even nationally, is this pandemic has caused some people, I think sinfully, to pri- listen to my heart on this pastorally. It's caused some people to sinfully prioritize physical health over spiritual health. Friends, we will all die, and I am not advocating for a kind of flippancy. I think we should be good stewards. I think we need to do whatever we need to do. But friends, there comes a point. I just ordered this book about how saints in the history of the church have dealt with plagues. And there was this great reformer, I think his name was, I think it was Zwingli, this great Swiss reformer who was ministering during the time of a great plague where, where like two-thirds of the population of his town was dying from this plague. And he goes to minister to them and he catches it himself. And friends, I, again, I'm not advocating for kind of a reckless sort of life, but I am saying that we have people that were part of this church that we haven't seen in two years and I am concerned about them spiritually. And we should be too. And I'm concerned about people who just kind of drift in and out or who aren't really connected to the church. That is a very vulnerable way to do the Christian life. And let me tell you, sin and all of its minions and all the demons in hell are stronger than you are on your own. Sin steals joy and destroys confidence. It robs us of joy in the Lord. It causes us to run when no one is chasing. It causes your stomach to turn over when somebody calls you because you wonder if they're going to tell you that they know who you really are. That's a terrible way to live. Sin causes us to always look over our shoulder. It causes us to be terrified. And when we live like that, there's no fruit, there's no joy, there's no focus on others around us, there's no giving away because we're always protecting Sin destroys joy. 
And finally, sin leads to death. It leads to spiritual death. Jesus said, Robert handled it last week very well, that Jesus tells the people that you will die in your sins if you don't trust in me. You will die in your sins. There's a way that seems right to man, Proverbs says, but its end is the way of death. Sin enslaves us. But the good news is, is that Jesus frees us. Jesus frees us. How does Jesus free us? He frees us through the new birth, friends. This is the good news of the gospel. <laughs> Again, I refer to what Taylor read for us from 1 Peter 1 earlier. He, if you're a Christian, think about this. I want you to understand this theological truth. You, you, you claim, you stand on this truth. You, you hold fast to this truth. You, you make this truth your hope. My hope is built, Edith sang it for us, my hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is what he has done. And what has he done? He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we were dead in our sins. We're dead people can't do any causing. Okay, Dead people can't verb. To cause. To make something happen, it's an action that requires life. And dead people can't cause anything to happen. The only thing that dead people can do is have something happen to them. And that's what salvation is. He caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So when this is how salvation works, primarily, theologically, you need to know this, is that God in his infinite kindness sees you in eternity past and he chooses you in Christ and he puts you in Christ and Christ lives a perfect life. He dies a sacrificial death. He absorbs the penalty for all of your sin, past, present, and future. Even the sin that you're struggling with now and in the future that you will surely overcome. Jesus has died for the penalty of that. He goes down into the grave and he rises again in victory. He resurrects in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And God, because he's placed you in Christ in eternity past, sees you in Jesus, so when Jesus resurrects, when Jesus dies, when Jesus resurrects, it's as if you died to sin and you resurrect in the newness of life. So you're alive. You're, you're alive. You, you may still struggle with the presence of sin, but the power of sin and the penalty of sin has been paid for by Jesus. That's fundamentally true. You, you have to know that. That is starting point for the Christian. He frees you through the new birth. Now, now listen to this. The most descriptive thing that you can say about yourself if you're a Christian is that you are in Christ. You're in Christ. Not that you still struggle with this. Not that you're formerly an alcoholic. Not that you're formerly a pornographer. Not that you're all of these things. The truest thing about you is not the sin that you're still struggling with. Stop identifying yourself by that. The truest thing about you is that you are in Christ. You died to your sin in Christ and you rose again in victory in Christ. And now you're free. You're free. You're free. Through the new birth, through union with himself, he made this distinction in his discussion with these people. He says that who the son sets free is free indeed, but the slave isn't free. 
And so we're united with Christ. We're in him. Nothing can snatch us from his hand. We're the body. Jesus is the head. So for a Christian to be snatched away from Jesus would be akin to sin or the devil removing the head of the church from the body of the church, which is an impossibility. You're united with Christ by faith. You're in him. He's in you. You're in him. He frees us through the spirit, his spirit of adoption. So it's not just this theological exchange from heaven down to earth. God's not just sitting on a throne making this happen, deeming it so. But his spirit comes in and dwells in us. In Romans 8, 15, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I love that picture of adoption. Just think about this. Now, no analogy is perfect, but I think this is a helpful picture for us. Think about a family, physically, a real family that adopts a child. And that, a child, that child had a terrible situation in the previous, say, 10 years of their life. All sorts of hardship, abuse, terrible things that have wreaked havoc on that child's soul. And as a result... That child has all sorts of issues, all sorts of behavioral problems. And a family adopts that child and they take that child to a courtroom. And a judge says that this child is now the child of this family. Now in that moment, when that judge certifies that adoption, that child has all the rights and privileges, is no less, no more, a true child of those parents than the biological children that they have and have grown up in their loving home. Boom, that child is, that child is now part of that family. Never to not be part of that family. But is that child all of a sudden just completely done with all of their behavioral issues? Absolutely not. We know that that child, that spirit of adoption that's now, that that adoption, that declaration, that legal declaration that this child is now a child of this family just begins the process of nurture and love and care to undo all of the pain of that child's past. And friends, in a way, that's how salvation works. So do you still struggle with sin? Of course you do. Because before you were a child of God by the Spirit, adopted as a child, you sinned and were sinned against. And we come into the family of God, every one of us, by nature and by choice, with baggage. That's why it's so helpful to distinguish salvation and new birth from sanctification, which is becoming who we already are in Christ. Jesus frees us, and through this process of adoption and sanctification, he frees us this process of sanctification, becoming like him through his word. Through his word that he's given us that changes. I think of Paul's words in Thessalonians where he says that the word of God is at work in you who believe. And finally, I end with this. He changes us, he frees us through, because we still got this remaining sin, right? So how are we gonna break free from this remaining sin? And I think we see this laced throughout the Bible. 
And I think it's, it's something that we don't want to just sort of say, oh, well, this is something that Catholics seem to do and doesn't seem like a Protestant thing to do. And I think Catholics really misunderstand it. And I think we need to recapture a good sort of doctrine of confession. What do I mean by that? Well, through confession, Jesus frees us, helps to free us from our remaining sin. Now, who's this confession to? Well, it's to God, obviously, first and foremost, 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess to God. And he's the only one that can cleanse us. And this is where I think that the Catholic Church really misunderstands forgiveness and repentance. Is they, they, they make too much of it mediated through a man, the priest, who has some sort of strange mystical power to absolve you. And I think that's a, 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 a dramatic misunderstanding of what the Bible says about confession. We're not, we're not absolved of our guilt, of our remaining sin through a priest. But there is a power and a means of grace that God has given for us to not just stay internal with our confession, but to talk to brothers and sisters about it so that we bring the light of our sin under the glory of Christ and the, the, the light of confession burns up the power of sin. Accountability is like sunlight on algae. It burns it up. Burns up sin. Listen to what James says. Where do I get this from? Listen to what James says. Remember we went through James. I'm sure you remember this from two years ago when we went through James chapter 5, right? Remember this? Get your notes out from James chapter 5. I'm just kidding. I know I don't remember what I talked about last week, so I know you don't either. But there's this interesting little end of James chapter 5, where he's talking about praying for one another. He's talking about healing of the sick, and there's a lot in this, and I do think that's the primary thrust of this passage, but James is going to tie. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that all physical sickness is tied to sin. Not, not at all. Sometimes we're just sick because we're part of this fallen creation, but James does seem to tie spiritual health and wholeness to sin, clearly, and even our physical health to sin here. And he says, listen to this, James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And let me just pause there and just say one of the things that we want to do with our Sunday night service is just that. If you're sick, let's pray. Let's obey this verse and let's believe that God can heal us knowing that he's sovereign. Sometimes he sends sickness our way for our good, but we should obey this verse. I think we should do that. But listen to this, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So there's this implicit sort of thread in there that wholeness is more than just physical healing. It will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What's the point I'm making? I'm saying that in this instance, not in every instance, James is tying physical sickness to spiritual sickness. And he's saying it needs to be confessed. So sin needs to be confessed. That's part of the reason why you're not well. 
Now, sin is not always going to manifest itself in physical sickness in our body, but the principle that I think James embeds in this passage is true. That one of the ways that we unburden ourselves, one of the ways we break free from the remaining hold and power of sin is to confess it to one another that we may be healed, maybe not physically, but spiritually. Is it the person that we're confessing that does the healing? Is it the priest? Is it the pastor? No, a thousand times no. It's God. But the point is, is that God has determined. This is part of living with the flock. This is part of what it means to be part of the herd, the church, is that God has designed. Because I can sit in my closet all day and I can just have a private prayer with God and I can say, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. But there's something powerful that God has designed about being in community and knowing a brother or sister and saying, can we go to lunch? Can I unburden my heart? And can I, can you help me fight this sin? This is what I've been doing. Help me, pray for me. It's not that you need their forgiveness, but share Sharing it with another person who's part of the body of Christ has a strange, peculiar, glorious gospel power to help us stay free from that thing. I think that's what James is saying. And I think that's one of the primary ways that Jesus frees us. But it doesn't work if we don't know each other and we come in and we sit next together for an hour and a half and we scurry off and we're never real with each other and we just act like everything's okay. Guess what, friends? Everything ain't okay. Can, can, can I get a north-south on that? It ain't okay. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for Jesus' words to these religious people that are a lot like us. We're not enslaved, they cry. We've been going to Cross Point for a long time. We're not enslaved. We know good Reformed theology. We're not enslaved. Oh, Jesus, we need you. We need you. Sin lies. Sin's subtle. Sin's never satisfied. Sin drags us further than we ever thought we would be. Sin stronger than we are and we're on our own. Sin leads to death. But Jesus, you free us. You make us alive. Our only hope is in you. You give us your word. You make us your children. You make us your heirs. You do, Lord. You do it. And Lord, may we confess sin to one another. May someone in this room who's wrecking their life, they're, they're being eaten in from the inside out because of sin. May they not let the sun go down on this day before they arrange with a trusted friend, a trusted Christian friend to meet and unburden their heart so that they might be spiritually healed. Lord, I pray that would happen. Lord, keep us from sin. Keep, keep all of us from sin. Guard us, Lord. Help us. Make us hold, cling fiercely to Jesus. And do it all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.